Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, March 19th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writers Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, uh, we haven't recorded a water cooler episode in over two weeks, so we have a lot to talk about collectively. I don't have a lot to talk about. Uh, I haven't been doing much. I've been going on some set visits. I've been uh, doing some interviews for the site, most of which you'll, you'll or some of which you'll see later this week. Uh, but Jacob, you've been busy at the South by Southwest Film Festival. We we recorded an episode about that yesterday, but there's a lot going on around that festival that isn't movies. So what have you been uh, getting yourself involved in? I get myself involved in a lot of lines and a lot of traffic and a lot of trying to avoid the other corners of South by Southwest, namely interactive and music. Uh, interactive brings all the uh, tech bros to town and it brings all the you know brands to town. And this year Uber brought an army of, of rentable scooters which led to all the tech bros renting these scooters and driving the wrong way down one-way streets, not avoiding, you know, going through stop signs, not not following traffic laws, and generally making the already busy downtown Austin into a bona fide nightmare. Wait, wait, wait does Austin not normally have these scooter things? They have a couple of them. I just, it was like sort of scattered, but Uber literally brought a massive fleet of them and then just turned them loose during a festival where tens of thousands of people get extremely drunk and then visit a city they do not know the layout of. And it was, as far as I know, no one was seriously hurt. There were no accidents. But when you're driving down a one-way street and suddenly a fleet of people on scooters are coming at you in a lane, it is... Some of us need to get us to act together. This is is rough. This is is a rough, rough week for actually being on the ground and trying to cover a film festival, Peter. Yeah. Uh, and you got to experience some of the, the gaming stuff going on in South By? This is the third year I went to South by Southwest Gaming, which is uh, takes place in the last few days of the fest. It's kind of like steadily growing. It's not like a big thing yet. 
And in past years, it's been a pretty even mixture of video games and tabletop, a combination of, you know, events and panels, uh, you know, vendors, uh, demos, things for sale. This year, I was very much let down. The tabletop presence was almost non-existent. Most of the show floor was video game demos with extremely long lines. It felt like either by accident or design, the attempt was to recreate something like PAX, uh, which you know is a very popular gaming convention where the whole idea is to stand in line and try to you know demo indie games or demo major games or try new products. And it just felt like it was too much crammed into too small of a space, and I missed the variety of of everything from past years, but I'm hoping this is just a, a growing pain, hoping that Southwest Gaming can continue to become something worthwhile. But however, I want to I I end this on a positive note. Uh, I was able to uh, have dinner with some dear friends of the site and contributors. Uh, Chris came down, which he'll discuss in a second, for the final few days of the fest. So uh, me, Chris, Meredith Borders, and Matt Donato all had dinner together uh, at the Clay Pit, an Indian restaurant in Austin. And it was incredibly uh, fun to see everybody. The other main slashing contributor who was writing for us, Joy Child, had already left town, so she couldn't make it. Uh, but you know, it was—it's just—it's always fun when people, when you're exchanging dozens of emails with people to work on stories, when you're constantly on Slack, you know, all day, every day, trying to, you know, make sure news is going up and make sure things are going smoothly. Re- remembering that the people you're talking to are human beings. <laughs> <laughs> and not just an algorithm you're talking to. It was always very fun, and I had a great time catching up with everybody. And I know uh, Chris had not met Meredith and Matt before, so even though Chris and Matt actually share a column on the site. So that was really fun to uh, you know introduce everybody. Uh, speaking of food, I, I, I discovered that I, I may have a dormant seafood allergy, so I spent the back half of South Southwest covered in hives, which are finally healing, Peter. Uh, <laughs> so that it was a... Very, very interesting week full of very, very... Uh, I, I do have to ask you, uh, Jacob, what did you eat at the Indian restaurant? Oh, yes. Uh, since I did stay on my diet the entire week, I just uh, got uh, some kebab appetizers. I got uh, oh. grilled uh, lamb, grilled paneer, which is a type of cheese, and grilled chicken. And they served it, you know, in uh, seasoned um, in a you know, bed of vegetables. So it was, you know, very, very healthy and sensible. I mean, I, yes, I missed the garlic naan. I missed the rice, but you know, I, it was, it was very, very good. And clay pit is a very good restaurant. So, and I'm sure Chris will have something to say about the food in Austin as well, because he's, he was able to explore it's this, this city's strange delights more than I could. And now that I'm home, uh, my new project is I built a spreadsheet and I decided I'm going to catalog my entire library. Peter, I am going to, all my books, all my comics, all my movies, all my board games. I'm going to have a spreadsheet uh, broken up by. By the way, all the I wouldn't create a spreadsheet. There's actually apps to do this, Jacob. Uh, like you... uh, I need a spreadsheet, Peter, for for how I want to do this because my spreadsheet is not just like title and author. It's location in my home. It is whether it's part of a set or a collection. It is, it is whether it's signed or you know out of print. It, it is very very specific, and I decided I'd rather okay. build my own than. Um, also, I want to be able to combine all my media into one thing, and, uh, and all the best apps need to be like just books or just movies, and I want to be able to fully customize everything uh, to my heart's uh, content. But if anybody out there thinks I'm wrong or thinks you know, okay, can, can endorse a a product or an app, you know, feel free to let me know. I'm only 123 books into the cataloging so far, and I was just 
two stacks uh, against the wall of my office. So I still have <laughs> maybe about six months of work to go. I- I'll keep you updated if it's not too boring. Wow. Uh, Brad, you've actually been cataloging your, your movie collection? Yeah, actually, I just recently started to do this because uh, I kind of wanted a different way to keep everything organized rather than just having a document um, available somewhere. And like I've thought of I because I usually have a Word doc that I uh, use to keep it keep it updated, um, but that I can't take that with me, and I can easily transfer it to a Google Doc, and so that I can have it everywhere. But I I stumbled upon this app. Um, from the it's the the sort it family of apps, where it, um they basically have a whole uh, an app that allows you to track tons of different collections, whether it's uh, comic books, albums, uh, toy cars, board games, um, a- action figures, Pez dispensers, shoes, like basically. Wait, do you catalog the, it all in one app? Well, so there's there's um from what I can tell, there's an app that has all these different things with it within it. And, but then there are, it looks like there are also separate apps for your collection, for your separate collections as well. If you want to, I don't know if all, they all have separate apps because I didn't go and look, search through some yeah. of them because obviously I don't have a wine collection, so I'm not looking for that app. <laughs> um, but, but I, so, and what's cool about it, at least with, by the way, um, imagine if you needed an app to catalog all your whole collection of wine, like that'd be insane. <laughs> But so what's cool about this uh, with the um, the movies especially is that you catalog them by scanning the barcode. So once you scan it, like it has all the information related to that movie in there. The, the only thing that is somewhat tedious about it occasionally is there are certain movies or certain collections. If you have all the movies like in one box that you have to go and search out the right version if you want it want it documented properly. Um, so that, that can be a little annoying at times if you have a larger collection, um, it happens a little bit more frequently than you might like. And just the process of scanning them is a little bit tedious anyway. Uh, there is the option to do a bulk scan where you see you scan a bunch of them, um, instead of having to do one by one. But if you want that, you do have to pay the, like the $10 to, for access to the full app, which is a lot, but that also allows you to do other stuff too, like, uh, transfer the lists to your computer, uh, and do do a bunch of different things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do with the free version of the app. So I've been making my way through my movie collection. Like I said, it's a little bit tedious, um, but it's I think it'll be worth it in the end. And I'll probably end up doing this with uh, some of my collectibles and, and vinyl and stuff like that, too, just so that I can have it all in a, in a central place somewhere. Yeah, I used to have 3,000 DVDs, and I, I had, like, some app that I used to catalog it. And I actually would... Um, Every year I'd print out a new catalog, kind of like I, I guess Blockbuster used to have a catalog in their stores of like all my collection. So you could like look at this book that was in like a three ring binder and every page just had like the pictures of all the DVD covers and the, in, you know, a little bit of info next to the, them. And it was my entire collection, which I guess you could have just went over to a wall and looked at the, uh, the spines of them, but it, it provided a little bit more info. Uh, you're you're not planning on doing any of that, I'm assuming. No, that's that's far <laughs> too extensive for me. And plus, since uh, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I have like a physical representation of my 
library so you can just go over to the shelf and look and see yeah what's there you know and I'm, I'm sure if they don't know what a certain movie is anyone who happens to be here and picking a movie they can just ask me <laughs> but the, the cool thing with these apps is you can sort them so like if someone's over your house and they're like you know they're like they want to see a comedy you can go to the app and sort by comedy and show them all the comedies you have instead of going through i'm sure your shelf at this point is kind of massive right yeah, I, I I have three Billy shelves from yeah. IKEA, um, and not every shelf is full of movies. Like the the top two shelves on each shelf, I have like collectibles and stuff on, but all of the rest of the shelves below them are all movies. Yeah, so I guess you also has the ability to organize by genre. A spreadsheet you design, you click the genre <laughs> column and organize them all by your genre that you put together. Peter, what app do you use again? I don't use an app because oh, okay. I do uh, – I, I, most of my movies are digital these days. So uh, I am oh, the only right. one on this podcast that believes in the future. Everybody else here is living in the past. So, uh, <laughs> Brad, what have you been doing this week? Uh, so um, pretty much two weeks ago now, since it's been so long since we've done a water cooler, I went to Victoria, British Columbia in Canada for a set visit. Um, I can say I can say which – it was what set I was visiting. It's for The Boy 2 – which is a sequel to the horror movie The Boy. Um, you can watch the original movie on Netflix right now. Um, they were shooting uh, up in Victoria, British Columbia, so we got to watch them shoot for a little while and visit the set. And we also visited uh, Craig Derrick Castle, which is the setting of the first movie, um, where it, it pretty much entirely takes place. So that was really cool. I can't really talk about anything else about the set visit other than that I was actually there. So we'll have a report on that whenever the embargo lifts sometime later this year. So stay tuned for that. Um, but it was it was cool. I'd never been to Victoria, British Columbia before. So I did some wandering around the city and checked out some of the local comic book shops and vinyl stores and, and that kind of thing. And it's kind of cool. It's um, it has the like it's almost like they took a big city, but shrunk it down. It, it feels like. Uh, a very rural metropolis, if that makes sense. Like it, it ha um, it has like medium-sized buildings in their downtown area, and it feels like you're in the middle of like a shrunken-down Chicago, I guess. Uh, tons of restaurants. Like I've, I've I, honestly, even in Chicago, you don't see this many different restaurants in such a small uh, area. So it was, it was a cool, uh, cool area to be. And plus, you know, everyone in Canada is so nice and cool anyway. Like it was, it was just a, a fun little trip. Yeah, and uh, you've also been preparing for an improv comedy show? Yeah, so um, I, I want to say it's been like a year and a half, maybe a little bit more. Um, I used to do improv with um, a friend of mine who uh, we also did stand-up comedy um, together around the same time when we were running a comedy club. But it's been a while just because I had to stop doing it since I did my transition to teaching program. And I, I hadn't gone back, but uh, our improv, old improv troupe is doing a charity comedy show for the charity organization that my friend runs here in town that we uh, put on these like adult oriented events like an 80s prom and like inappropriate trivia and things like that to support certain uh, local organizations uh, with funds from, from these shows. So the, an improv show is happening this coming weekend. Uh, all the proceeds are going to charity and... Uh, since they're performing, they actually asked uh, me and my friend Ben if we wanted to like come back and do some of the show with them. So we hadn't rehearsed with them in a while, and this past weekend we went and uh, kind of picked it back up. And it was there was a, it was a little bit rough, but it was 
once we got back into the groove, we felt really comfortable and it was a really uh, fun rehearsal. So I'm, I'm just excited to kind of get back on stage and do it. I love doing improv comedy. Um, it's one of my favorite things to do. And yeah, so that's happening this weekend, which should be pretty fun. So if people are in the area, how can they come see this? <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're in the, the area where, where I live, I would be very surprised. Um, but if you want to check it out for whatever reason, uh, if you go to Facebook and look up Big Comedy Laporte, we have the link to tickets on there. Uh, it's on uh, brown paper tickets. And I think there's only like 20 some tickets left. It's almost sold out. Um, there's, there, there's a total of like 200 seats in the theater. So if, yeah, if you want to see it, then go there and if, check it out. <laughs> so if you're close to LaPorte, Indiana, check that yeah. out. Um, Chris, you were, as Jacob mentioned, you were in Austin. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you see while you were in town? Uh, well, I, I saw all the stuff Jacob mentioned, which included, you know, uh, drunken people on scooters and, um, I don't know if it was because it was a combination of South by Southwest and St. Patrick's Day, but I don't know how anyone can survive living in Austin because I don't think I met a single sober person the entire time I was there. Everyone was just <laughs> just constantly uh, wasted, including me. Basically, you just wake up and you drink and you're just drinking all night. And by by the last day I was there, I was actually like ready to go because I felt like if I had stayed another day i would probably get alcohol poisoning it's a <laughs> i don't know if, like i said i don't know if it's like that all the time or if it's just because oh, of it, it definitely is like the first uh, i wouldn't say like probably five times i had been to austin it was either for south by or, or fantastic fest and i feel like you get that kind of experience in both of those things but then once i went to austin outside of those things austin is a lot calmer outside of the festival scene would you say jacob uh, yeah, I mean, if you go downtown and, and hit Sixth Street, uh, which is you know alcohol tourism district, you will find the atmosphere constantly. Uh, and but people in this town really love their alcohol, but they tend and they like to celebrate. <laughs> but I'd say you know most of the year it's more of a have a beer and relax vibe, and not a have a beer and run through the streets punching things vibe. So uh, aside from drinking, Chris, what were you doing in Austin? Uh, I was there for the uh, world premiere of Pet Cemetery, the the remake slash new adaptation, which debuted there. And I also did the the junket for the film, which was uh, a very long day. I was basically uh, it was like four hours worth of going from person to person to interview them. And uh, that was great. And I'll, I'll talk about the movie when we get down to the, the watching yeah. section. And in addition to all that, I also went to an Alamo draft house for the first time in my life because I've never been to one. And I went to the, the South Lamar location. I went there twice, actually. I went there uh, one day before the Pet Cemetery screening because I had time to kill. And I also went there the last day I was there because after I wrapped up my interviews, I was there until the next morning. So I, I went there twice and um, uh, it's good. I don't know if it was as like life changing as some people have made it out to be where like they, they make it sound like it's like the Holy grail of going to the movies, but it was definitely nice to be in a theater and be able to just, you know, put a, a piece of paper uh, in front of me that says bring me more beer and that was uh, <laughs> so yeah it, it, it was it was an interesting experience how did you feel about people eating so like because this is a theater to be made to eat in and i know you're not fond of 
um, other moviegoers eating in your presence. You know, it's not, it wasn't too bad because what happened, well, the first one, the first film I saw, I got there as the credits were, were I mean, as the uh, previews were running. So I didn't really notice a lot. The, the second film I got there early and most people ordered their food like a good, like 20 minutes before the movie even started. So by the time it started, most people were, were done eating except for people getting like additional stuff. And every once in a while, the, the server would, you know, walk in front of me, like trying to crouch down to stay out of the way, but I would still see her. And uh, that got slightly distracting. But other than that, it was not as bad. It certainly was not as bad as, you know, movie theaters around me where people are just fucking munching away <laughs> on like the loudest goddamn things in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. HT, what have you been up to this week? Um, well, this is also last week um, in which I got to see uh, the Pixies and Weezer at their sort of double build concert at Madison Square Garden. And um, this is actually the second time I've seen Weezer. I saw them, I think like two years ago, a year ago, uh, when I was living in DC. And um, they at the time were doing a double billing concert with or tour with uh, Panic at the Disco. I thought it was just really funny how the crowds for Weezer are just like very incredibly. So when I was with, when they were performing with Panic at the Disco, there were a lot of teen girls there who were very excited for the guy in Panic at the Disco who I'm forgetting his name for. And um, as soon as Weezer came on, they all left. And then uh, this time with Pixies and Weezer, it was a much older crowd, as you could expect, uh, with a fair amount of families, too. I was I was surprised to see like five year old kids brought in with like their dads and stuff. But it was a fun time. Um, Weezer and Pixies, the Pixies played like their best hits. Um, the Weezer especially played like a lot of the Blue Album, which I was fond of growing up. So I was really excited to hear all of that. And um at one point, Rivers Cuomo like went on sort of uh, this sort of boat-like structure that took him through the crowd, and I thought that was a nice, that was a funny little moment. I don't know, maybe that was just me, like Rivers on a boat. But um, <laughs> uh, that was. They also played quite a lot of the Teal album, which is their recent release of all the covers of um, of all the, like Weezer covers of uh, popular hits like Toto's Africa and everything, and that was. Um, something that Rivers seemed to really enjoy playing and the crowd really enjoyed. But I was a little bit distressed that to- that Africa got like a bigger sort of reaction from the audience than the sweater song, which is one of my favorite songs. So I was just like, you know, it's okay as long as Rivers is having a good time. So I had a good time seeing them and um, it was, a, it was a, a fun concert. Well, very cool. Let's move on to what we've been reading. Chris, uh, you know, with all this travel, I, I assume you brought some books with you. Uh, no, this wasn't while I was traveling. I, uh, I'm, you know, as, as everyone knows, I'm terrified to fly and I don't think I could concentrate on like a book if I were, if I were flying, but, um, I have been reading, uh, it's called bad blood secrets and lies in a Silicon Valley startup. And this is about Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, HBO actually just aired a documentary about this last night. And there's also a podcast about it. And I think Adam McKay is making a movie about it. It's a, it's a big story. But um, Elizabeth Holmes, she uh, was this um, 19-year-old entrepreneur, and she started this company called Theranos. And they claimed to be able to do all this extensive blood work with just a simple um, 
pinprick on your finger, which, uh, you know, scientists and medical professors know is not possible at all. But she said it was. And she was so convincing that she was able to just start this massive uh, billion dollar company. And uh, for a few years, she kept it going by just basically lying about everything. She just kept saying her technology worked and very, very slowly. So this is like a Billy McFarland situation. Yeah, but even more serious because she's, you know, dealing with medicine and and sick people and (laughs) uh, and, you know, very, very slowly people began to catch on that she was just completely full of shit. And it's just this fascinating story because what's fascinating about it is, you know, in retrospect, you can see how, you know, fake it all is like reading about it now. You can tell how it's clear that she's making all this up, but she was so convincing that so many people just went along with it and it's just this really it's just this great story about how people are very willing to be suckered and i think um in the last few years particularly we, we've learned how willing people are to just be <laughs> lied to and believe it unconditionally so yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a very good book i recommend it yeah especially when the lie is something we want to believe you know right um, yeah yeah jacob what have you been reading uh, well, I was hoping to keep up my book a week plan during South by Southwest, and it collapsed almost instantly. <laughs> but uh, since South by, I started reading John Darnell's Wolf in White Van. You know, I'm almost done with it. I was hoping to have it finished for this podcast. I have 50, 50 pages left. But uh, even then, I, I can recommend this book wholeheartedly. This is uh, the first book from John Darnell. The Maybe it's the second book. It's, it's an early book from John, Dar- John Darnell, who's most known as the lead singer-songwriter of the Mountain Goats. And... This book has a really fascinating structure and really moving personal prose. It's about a, uh, it's told out of order and things are revealed very slowly. So I don't want to say tip my hand too much. It was about a disfigured man who runs a role-playing game service through the mail where you send in your moves to him by letter and he sends back what you do. And it's about how his game inspires two young people to, to take it too seriously and, uh, and one of them is killed, and he has to go answer for himself at a hearing to see if the if the families of the victim can hold him responsible. And the book flashes forward between uh, this hearing, before the hearing, after the hearing, his childhood, the reason he's disfigured. Uh, it flashes into the game itself and the world he created, and it's just this fascinating, moving, terrifying examination of the worlds we build and why we, and why we choose to create our own worlds to escape within, and. And why the the allure of fantasy and how fantasy poisons us. It, it's really dark stuff, but it's it, it goes down surprisingly easy. I think in the same way that his, his songwriting is often so dark, but delivered in a way that's very melodic and truthful and relatable. Uh, and that's Wolf in White Van. It's actually a pretty short read. It's just, over, just over 200 pages. I've read it, most of it in two sittings, and I recommend it wholeheartedly. Uh I think HT will be pleased to know that I just burned through the first four volumes, uh, hardcover volumes, the first 24 chapters, however many, much of the series that is, of uh, Full Metal Alchemist, which I, I'd started, yes. thought was fun, and then just, uh, and then sit down again to keep reading, and I'm full on obsessed with it now, HT. This is yeah. one of my, one of my favorite worlds <laughs> I've ever encountered in, in fiction. I feel like, um, I'm going to pull up the writer-artist's name, um, uh, Hiromu uh, Arakawa. Uh, her her world-building tactics, I feel like so much fiction feels the need to pause to explain its world. 
it feels the need to you know dump the exposition on you early on to say okay now you know now you're armed for the journey ahead whereas this one just says okay we're gonna root you if these characters in this really strange alternate um 19th century european anime world or manga world and we're gonna explain things as necessary for you to know them and by the end of the first four volumes uh first 24 chapters however you want to call it uh i was very much on board of this world understanding its rules and i was surprised by how much the context of the art and the writing was able to slip into me as opposed to it being dumped on me i feel like a lot of uh creators both people working in you know film tv comics manga should look at this and take a lesson in, in, in how effortless it makes it feel uh HT, uh, what lies ahead for me? Uh, to give you an idea, I just finished the uh, chapter that was the extended flashback to the main character's childhoods. So, mm. w- where am I going next? Give me, a, give me a tease. Um, things get uh, even more. Uh, there's sort of some this disparate threads going on. So, in the sort of more micro. Uh, level of the storytelling, there's a lot of political intrigue and uh, some really great arcs that have to do with the supporting characters. And things also get much more mythic at the end. So in addition to the world building, you see this this world and story just becomes much grander than you anticipate. Um, and you get to, to meet some fan favorite characters along the way too. I, one of my favorite things about the series is just how rich and complex all the characters are. And um, that even though this series does mine a lot of like tragedy and um, like really horrific events, it never like becomes just too bleak and overwhelming. So I'm excited for where you're headed. Um, yes, I, I think you're going to be seeing a lot of great things ahead. Yeah. Well, I've decided that since they're releasing, they're releasing the whole series in these really nice hardcovers that I think each one is equivalent of two paperbacks. So I'm going to be steadily buying those as they release them every few months. So I'll keep you updated, HT, as to where I am. I think the next one's out in either April or May. Uh, but speaking of me trying to fill in holes in my uh, manga knowledge, trying to you know, trying to appreciate better appreciate uh, the Japanese comics industry, I've been, I read some about more Junji Ito, who is probably the most terrifying comics artist on the planet. And he, uh, I've read some of his stuff before. Uh, but I've not read his uh, Shivers collection, which is just a bunch of stories from uh, from across his career, some early on, some of them more modern, that he's collected in, into one volume. And like a lot of short story collections, is hit and miss. But uh, nobody draws a more terrifying image than Junji Ito. There's stuff that he's drawn where I, seeing it in context or out of context, it is deeply upsetting and disconcerting. And the storytelling... Is sometimes very crystal clear and sometimes liberally opaque. Sometimes the storytelling isn't as good as the art. Sometimes it's as good. I feel like this collection especially uh, sometimes seems to value a creepy image over a good story, which I don't think is always the case with some of his later work. Uh, but I was really impressed with this collection, and I really enjoyed his somewhat self-deprecating intros to his uh, individual stories where he would explain his process and be very humble about the fact that you know, this is from early in my career. Maybe it didn't work out as well as it could have. I apologize. Uh, HT, I, I think we I think we've talked with Junji Ito offline before. How much of him, his work have you read? 
I haven't read that much just because it really disturbs me and like I can't really read a lot of his things without just having nightmares for weeks. Um, I think I know he's been compared to David Cronenberg and that's very apt comparison. His uh, stories get into that body horror especially and just like some really disturbing harrowing imagery. Um, I watched the there is an anime adaptation of one of his collections on Crunchyroll which is really good um, but it does it's not quite as just um, fully unnerving as his uh, his mangas are. But yeah, it's just, it, Junji Ito is good and I acknowledge how good he is, but I don't think I can really read a lot of his stuff. Yeah, I felt really gross when I finished his collection because I feel like even though I'm looking at flat printed paper, I feel like I can smell and touch the texture of his art in a way that's very, very upsetting. Very cool. Uh, let's talk about what we've been watching. I have only a few things to talk about uh, on today's edition. I did get sent the screeners for the f- second season of Cobra Kai. I know everybody listening uh, and, and you guys know that Cobra Kai was my favorite thing uh, that I saw last year in terms of television and probably the second favorite thing I saw overall of last year. So if you've not seen Cobra Kai season one on YouTube premium, I highly recommend it. Um, I saw all 10 episodes of the second season. I don't think I'm supposed to give my reaction for all 10. I think the first two screened at South by. So there's, uh, they released the embargo. I'm talking about the first two. Uh, I will say that this season, um, you know, starts off directly after the cliffhanger that season one kind of, uh, ends off on, and um, I guess by now that I, I I can say this publicly, but it basically introduces Martin Cove, who played uh, Sensei John Kreese from the Karate Kid movies. He appears, uh, and in that season, we don't really know how he uh, is going to play a factor in this season. And what we suspect, the thing I love about the show is it always takes your expectations of where things are going and kind of flips it on its ear. And uh, even how John Kreese is involved in this season, in this first episode, is kind of uh, not exactly what you expect. And uh, I kind of love that. Um, it, uh, th- in th- this, this season does some stuff like that in interesting ways. I don't think this is as, as clever as the first season. Um, the first season played more off of moments and training ideas from the original Karate Kid film. And this season has a lot more originality, which I guess is a good thing, but it, it, uh, loses some bit in nostalgia. It, um, and when it does reference things, when it does reference moments from the movies, uh, it does so in more obvious and glaring ways. Like they'll, you know, mention someone and all of a sudden cut to a clip of a flashback from the movies. Do you know what I mean? Um, and uh, to the point that uh, my girlfriend Kitra was making fun of every, how many times they had, you know, quote unquote flashbacks in the show. Um, But uh, this season opens, that first season is about, you know, Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence, uh, you know, their feud being re-sparked after all these years and uh this season opens the world up quite a bit it's a much bigger story um it introduces a lot of new characters including paul walter hauser who was in i Tonya and black uh clansman um and he uh is a home depot employee who has an interest in uh being you know 
a karate person. So uh, he brings some comedy to this season that I think uh, is funny. Uh, this season is also a lot more cheesy than the first season. It, it embraces its 80s roots uh, uh, of the original movies. Um I think people are going to like it. Uh, I would recommend it uh, based on the first two episodes because I can't say anything about the the other episodes, but maybe I'll talk about those at a later time. I did also go see uh, a junket screening of Disney's live-action adaptation of Dumbo. This is the movie that is directed by Tim Burton. Um, Now, I'm going to say my experience with these Disney live-action adaptations have been kind of... Uh, 50-50. I liked Jungle Book and I enjoyed Cinderella, but the other two I kind of hated. Um, I hated uh, Beauty and the Beast. And what was the other one? Anybody? Maleficent? Maleficent. Well, I guess that's not an adaptation. Cinderella? No, I like Cinderella a little bit. (laughs) Okay, well, anyways. um, But, you know, it's been, it's been, you know, either you love it, you hate it. Um, I was not particularly looking forward to Dumbo. Uh, Dumbo is... It's also... Dumbo is a 60-minute film that was made a long time ago, uh, and this movie is nearly two hours. Um, And Tim Burton hasn't made anything in live action that I've actually really enjoyed since, I guess, maybe over a decade. Uh, I would say that this is is definitely his best live-action film since maybe I guess Sweeney Todd or uh, around that era, um, it has incredible art, production design, costume design. Like I, I don't see how it won't be nominated for all the that kind of stuff at the end of the year. Uh, it just uh, Burden creates this interesting visual world. Uh, so many of the frames look like a painting. Uh, there's fun nods for both fans of the original animated movie and Disneyland fanatics because this movie actually it's it's interesting this movie the first 40 minutes of this movie is basically an adaptation of the original and then the rest of the film is kind of like a sequel so i think um people this is worth seeing over general the general live action adaptation because it has a lot more to say about it and the second uh part of this movie kind of takes place in like a Disneyland uh, type theme park, and uh, I'm and uh, that that's interesting. I'm surprised at the, there's a big animal rights message here that I think is gonna um, uh, make some people happy and piss off other you know people. <laughs> uh, I I think uh, Tim Burton got this right. Michael Keaton plays a version of kind of kind of like a Walt Disney Trump mashup. If that sounds interesting to you, you can see this movie. Uh, I'm not going to say this is a great film, but it was much better than I was expecting it to be. Um, and the third film I saw was Shazam. I saw the first screening of Shazam. Um, this is the movie sorry, starring Zachary Levi. who It's basically a wish fulfillment. Um, you know, he becomes a superhero. It's based on DC Comics title of the same name. Um, or I, actually, isn't it of Captain Marvel? Is it, or wait, what what is Shazam based off of, Jacob? Uh, Shazam is now named Shazam officially in the comics, but he originally was named Captain Marvel yeah. in the comic series Captain Marvel. That trademark lapsed, so Captain Marvel then starred in the series Shazam, 
then when that got confusing, um, they just made the whole thing Shazam. It's it's all it's the whole thing. We actually have an article coming uh, this week that will explain all of this. Look for that soon. Yeah, it's 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 very uh, very confusing. Anyways, this is joy filled wish fulfillment. It's fun. It's fu- It's funny. It's uh, a bit more over the top and cheesy than I thought it was going to be. I feel like he uh, they really capture like the kind of like. Uh, dysfunctional family aspect of like the John Hughes films like Home Alone and you know obviously it's playing off of like big and that those kind of movies um it feels like a movie that was made in the 90s it doesn't feel like something that was made today and uh the score kind of emulates Williams and Elfman and it has a lot of heart and uh I think the villain is a little bit generic and one note and uh but it definitely feels like the biggest 180 degree turn from the Snyder era of the you know this is it feels like we're doing something new and it uh it's very family friendly you can take your kids to see this and uh it wears its hearts on it wears its heart on its sleeve and uh I liked it I'm more lukewarm on it than other critics I know uh HT you also saw this film right yeah um so all the reasons that you were listing just now with your sort of um uh, less enthusiastic <laughs> tone. Was it backhanded reasons... compliments? Is <laughs> all the reasons I really enjoyed this film. Yeah. I enjoyed its cheesiness. I enjoyed its sincerity. I think that that throwback to 90s, early 2000s superhero films I thought was very much in line with why I fell in love with superhero movies in the first place. It felt very much like a sort of Sam Raimi throwback. And yeah, some of the moments were a little bit overtly cheesy, but I thought it was so in line with um, this character who is nicknamed the Big Cheese. Uh, Zachary Levi is just so effortlessly charming in this role, which feels like it was made for him. And uh, I, I, I just I'm so it was such a delight from start to finish. Um, and uh, the film has a lot of laughs, a lot of heart. And I especially love that the found family aspect, too, because it kind of ties down this character in a way that we don't really see a lot of superhero characters, that they have this sort of more this backup system. And uh, I, I like that a lot. Like, I remember, um, Peter, when you're talking about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and how you really wanted to get to know all of these characters more and you got uh, really interested in reading about their comics yeah. and uh, their stories. That was um, the reaction I had to Shazam after I saw it because I was so enamored with all of these characters and uh, Shazam especially. And I was this was a character that I had not really dive, de- delved into um, even though I am a, a DC Comics fan, I was I haven't really read a lot of Shazam or watched a lot of Shazam things. But after this, I was like, when where is the next Shazam comic book <laughs> or animated movie I can watch? Because I just had a blast watching this film. Um, this is a movie that I think impacted me almost as much as as as, as Wonder Woman when I saw it. I really enjoyed it, and. Um, yeah, I think it's it's really great and really funny, and I I'm a little sad that you don't like it as much as me, Peter. But it's okay. Hey, I don't want to sound like I'm hating on this movie because I really did enjoy it, and I would recommend this over Dumbo for sure. Um, but uh, I do feel like I don't know. And you know what? You did mention like that found family aspect of this movie is the biggest thing. I don't think they're promoting it all in the trailers mm-hmm. and stuff. And that was the biggest surprise to me is how much heart that that part of the story had. And I kind of like that more than the superhero stuff, to be honest with you. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, not, not to get into spoilers, but there's some stuff that happens in the third act that are, it's kind of surprised that I wasn't, 
particularly on board for, but it's it's I I guess I, I understand what how it could work uh, for someone who who loves you know enjoys more kind of cheesy stuff. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. So uh, that is what I've been watching. Brad, what have you been watching? So many things. So many things. Um, <clears throat> so before I left to visit the set of The Boy 2, I watched The Boy because I hadn't seen it yet. Um, and if, I, I'm really honest, I didn't watch it because when I saw the trailer, it just didn't look good to me. It looked like the uh, a familiar store we uh, had already seen before. It had like this Night of the Living Dummy vibe because it's about this uh, woman played by Lauren Cohen from The Walking Dead who goes to this old house where there's this couple who has a son that she's going to be a nanny for. And she learns that the boy she's being a nanny for is this uh, porcelain doll. That's like two and a half, three feet tall. And the, the, this old couple takes care of it. Like it's their real son. And so she kind of goes along with it and there's all these rules and stuff. And it's this, it it's kind of feels like your typical movie where there's a horror movie like this, where there's weird things that are happening and, Obviously, there's something weird about the doll and something supernatural is going on. Um, And it's a little bit slow and hard to get invested in. But I will tell you, if you watch it, you will be rewarded with an amazing third act that does something completely unexpected that I was absolutely floored by when I saw it. It comes out of nowhere. It changes everything about that happens in the movie that in the earlier part of the movie and I think it's worth watching. It, it's fun. It's um, it's a cool uh, twist on it, and you you just you just won't expect it. Well, by, by any means, have any of you guys seen the boy? I have not. I I suspect this is something. This is more Chris Jacob territory. Uh, yeah, I, I've I've seen oh. it. Yeah, the boy's good. Uh, my my issue with the boy is that uh, the really really incredible third act. Uh, was done in a it was done in a very different way, but like in a similar structure, in another film. Who just naming it could spoil it. So I'm not going to say it, but it shares a twist with a with a extremely great foreign horror film uh, that I, that I saw first. And I don't think the writers of the boy saw because it's just different enough. So the wind was a little taken out for that reason. But I think the boy is real good. There you go. Uh, and then, then while I was uh, I was up in Victoria, British Columbia, I happened to see that the Wandering Earth was playing nearby, and it wasn't super close back here at home at the time. So I went out of my way to hit up a theater in Canada to see it, and I'm so glad I did. And I'm even more glad that I saw it on a big screen because it is a true blockbuster. Um, this is we, we've talked about this before because it's such a huge movie overseas. Um, it's already like this this huge hit in China. Uh, they're like their biggest blockbuster ever, basically. And this is one hell of a production. Um, they it's basically China's version of Armageddon, but it has elements of The Day After Tomorrow and Snowpiercer and some other big disaster sci-fi movies thrown into it. And I, I don't love everything about it. Um, it's definitely a little bit outlandish at times but no more outlandish than something like armageddon and it's thoroughly entertaining the the cast is fantastic the special effects aren't always the best but they they're they're very good you know all things considered and it's just it's it's a very big fun blockbuster movie and i was really glad that i saw it in theaters very cool what else have you been watching um and then i saw uh, on the plane back i watched shoplifters 
uh, which is a fantastic movie. I know HT has seen it before and loved it, and I was uh, very happy to uh, – I really enjoyed it as well. Uh, it's very touching and endearing. The The family at the center of it is just – it's it's so lovely. You know, it's this little makeshift family, um, you know, of, of thieves and that kind of thing. It's just a very uh, a heartwarming movie and uh, definitely sad – but it's I really I really liked um, what it just just what it has to say about this just what family is you know even to people who aren't necessarily you know a uh, a real family. Um, I also watched and, and that's on Hulu now I think. Yes, that's available on Hulu now. Yeah, just recently uh, became available on there. So HD's uh, favorite movie of last year. Go see it. Yes. <laughs> um, I also watched Teen Titans go to the movies because it was one of the few things that fit in the, my remaining flight time after I watched Shoplifters, and I was just kind of curious about it. And it's actually not bad. It is, um, it's very uh, kid-centric, very much geared towards a younger audience, especially when it comes to uh, the comedy. But there's some solid jokes in there, and there's, there's even some darker jokes in there, because there's, there's a whole bit in this movie where um, they... So the whole gist of it is Robin desperately wants his own movie, but he's not a big enough superhero to get his own movie. So in order to do it, they just casually decide to time travel and get rid of all the other cooler superheroes so that Robin is now a big deal. But when they kill the superheroes, they don't kill the superheroes, but they stop. They stop their origins from taking place. So like they go back and save Bruce Wayne's family um and they stop krypton from being destroyed so none of these superheroes actually come to exist on earth but then when they come back earth is in absolute chaos and supervillains are destroyed everything so they go back and undo it so but it's funny to see because when they go back and undo it they basically uh go back and make sure that bruce wayne's parents get killed <laughs> so it's a little bit dark um but there's it's 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 uh it was pretty funny i i didn't Love it, but for what it is, especially for kids, it was a, an enjoyable mix-up of uh, kind of the superhero genre, and it's 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 definitely a, a wackier comedy installment for superheroes. I also saw How to Train Your Dragon three, uh, which I loved as a conclusion to this franchise. Uh, very touching. I, I love just the dynamic between Hiccup and uh, Toothless is so moving, and it, it really just feel like you've spent so much time with these characters. And it was a great send off, send off for them. Uh, it was a v- visually stunning as well as all of the How to Train Your Dragon movies have been. Um, and it definitely made me sad that this franchise is over. But it was, I'm glad that they gave it a fitting ending. And I felt like this was also the one time where they really did more with the supporting cast. Hiccup's friends got a little bit more time to do more than they did in the previous movies, which I appreciated, even though it wasn't much. I felt like they had the, uh, a better moment to shine in this movie than the, the other movies. Um, what, Peter? I was just going to say agreed. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, you also saw Captain Marvel. Saw Captain Marvel. Uh, loved Captain Marvel. It's, it's fantastic. I love the, um, the how this movie approaches modern-day topics, even though it's set in the 90s. It has a lot more to say about relevant issues that are plaguing us today. Uh, than the trailer indicates, which I think is smart because it comes as a surprise. I love the way that they handle the scrolls in this movie. Um, I love Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. Samuel Jackson is great as Nick Fury. The visual effects used to bring him to a younger version of himself are unbelievable. Uh, it, it looks like Sam Jackson from the 90s. 
it was was brought back. Like it felt like his the version of him that you see in the Negotiator was in this movie. Uh, Goose the Cat, incredible. But Ben Mendelsohn is the MVP of this movie without a doubt. He is so great in this movie in a variety of ways. There are so many things that he does in this movie that I absolutely love, and it makes me want to see Ben Mendelsohn do more comedy things. Like he's been relegated to being uh, kind of a villain. Uh, it's sort of an overseer character, and I think that he really has some good uh, comedic chops, and I'd like to see those utilized a little bit more freely. And Jacob, you also finally saw Captain Marvel. Uh, I, I saw it literally the evening before South by Southwest started, so I saw that movie, went to sleep, woke up, went to South by Southwest, so I, I never had a chance to talk about it. But I think it's very good. I think it's uh, shaggy, even by Marvel standards, uh, it's because I think they sometimes make shaggy movies, movies I love nonetheless, but... Um, there's just some weirdness here. There's stuff I feel like has been chopped out. The action's only okay. But when it shines, and it's, it shines a lot, and it, it works in areas that matter. I think that the Brie Larson, Sam Jackson dynamic is great. I love Goose the Cat. I uh, loved uh, I loved Carol Danvers' relationship with the, the Rambeau family. Ben Mendelsohn rocks. Uh, and like I said, the stuff they're hiding in the trailers, I, I won't go too much too many specifics about is what really won me over and i i love how uh marvel even at, at its best tells superhero stories that they managed to sneak relevant things into and i i feel like people who say that um marvel is just popcorn entertainment sometimes are you know missing some very very clever ways that that, that uh marvel filmmakers are infusing personal touches whether it's personal to them or personal to the times you live in into these films. And I think that Captain Marvel does that in several ways that I think I found really powerful. And uh, I'm going to do a minor, minor spoiler alert here. So for 30 seconds, you know, you know, hit pause, take your earbuds off. I just want to say uh, talking to my wife, um, she was very, very happy to see a female driven superhero movie where it's where it's ultimately about a bad guy telling the woman you're too emotional in your work it's gonna make you do a bad job and then she wins the day by being by using her emotions effectively because fuck men <laughs> so end of spoilers I, I that was a very very satisfying conversation and I'm glad that there's a movie where that's a message very cool um okay let's move on to free solo uh yeah. Brad you also saw that I did uh free solo is on Hulu now and I finally got around to checking it out and holy crap, this movie gave me so much anxiety. Um, it is so tense just watching um, Alex Honnold climb this mountain. It, I, I don't even know how anybody comes to want to climb a mountain like this and not do it without a harness. It is it just it looks insane enough with a harness and with with ropes and with the with people with you, you know, to hold you up if you if you fall. And it's just it's just insane seeing how how big it is. And like especially after I looked it up, how big this mountain is compared to like skyscrapers. Um, it's it's nuts that he was that he was able to do this and even wanted to do this. And there's there's moments in here, too, that like that aren't even from this climb that kind of like g- gave me stress to uh, footage of other um, climbers who were doing these uh, free solo, you know, climbs up mountains there and there's that there's even one part in this uh documentary where they're showing you know footage of other free solo climbers that have gone a little bit awry and there's uh there's a shot where where a person falls 
off of the mountain that they're doing. And I thought, oh my God, that person is about to die. And then like at the very bottom, right before like a parachute, you know, goes off and like that person saved. But it's like, it's just insane to me. I was so, so like energized, but in like the most anxious way possible while watching this movie. No, I, I also really dug Free Solo. I think I talked about that a few weeks back on, or probably a month back on the water cooler. Um, what else have you been watching? I watched Mona Lisa Smile for the first time ever. I hadn't seen it, and uh, my girlfriend really enjoys that movie. So it's, it was on Netflix, so we uh, watched it together in, in our you know usual long-distance way. Um, and I enjoyed it. It's it's very much a, um, a female-centric version of uh, like Dead Poets Society, but it's it has a lot of charm to it. It has a great cast too. Um, I had no idea some of the other people who were in this movie besides like Julia Roberts and Julia Stiles and Kirsten Dunst, but uh, Jennifer Goodwin is in it. Uh, Kristen Ritter has like a background role in it as one of the students who doesn't really have uh, a key role in in the movie. And yeah, it was um, you know it's it's not something that I fell in love with, but I think that it was um, a very uh, well done movie and I think this movie actually also kind of worked as uh, an entryway for Mike Newell to show uh, how he um, good he would be with the Harry Potter movies because there is a bit like kind of a Hogwarts s style to the um, the classic Wellesley University vibe yeah and uh, it seems and like I, watched... I was gonna say like, like like my girlfriend it seems like you watched uh, the, or no you were watching the first season of Queer Eye I did. I haven't watched. The, I, I haven't watched any of it, and I kept hearing how good it was, and I kind of wanted to, but never sat down to actually do it. And my girlfriend really likes the show, and she said we should. You should sit down and watch this. She's like, I'll rewatch the the, the older episodes with you, and then you, and you can check it out. And I'm I'm I was so surprised. Like I thought the show would be good, and it would be fun, but this this show is just an absolute delight. It's so uplifting. And I, I love the, the this group of the Fab Five, especially Jonathan. Oh my gosh, Jonathan is fantastic. I love him because not only is he just so excited about everything and always full of energy and enthusiasm, but he's constantly making movie references and things like that. He's he's just fantastic. I I, <laughs> I want him to come to like my birthday party. Um, but it's I I love that the the stories here because it's not only is it cool to see the renovations that they do and the makeovers and stuff like that. But the there's actually real connections between these guys and the people that they are doing makeovers with, especially uh, the kind of connections that you wouldn't normally expect, I think, to see on a show like this. A lot of things that are kind of dealing with the tension that exists between, uh, you know, different races and uh, people with different uh, political viewpoints. Uh, it's just um, I've been surprised by how how moving the show is and how much it pulls on your heartstrings. See, I've only seen a couple episodes of Queer Eye, but I feel like that's what I wanted uh, tidying up with Marie Kondo to be more. Uh, like, I I feel like it, it, it's not always the same answer. It's uh, it's more um, emotional. It's more about uh, getting to the root of these people. And it's 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 more complicated. I feel like the 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 answers of how to fix these things, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, because a lot of the stuff they dive into, it's it's more about, um, it's more human. They 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 dig into like the more personal side of things as opposed to like the practical of just you know, um, you know, fixing up your house and organizing things. There's there's yeah. something about it that that's that taps into 
you know, what's like in people's hearts and in their minds and like things that have affected them from their past and their relationships with their friends and family. Yeah. And it still has the makeover aspect as well, though. So, um, yeah. Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched From Here to Eternity for the first time. This is a 1953 movie about uh, it sort of takes place in the lead up to the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, this film won eight Academy Awards. Uh, it was directed by Fred Zinneman and it stars uh, Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, uh, Deborah Kerr, Frank Sinatra and Donna Reed. Uh, Donna Reed, I'd only seen I think she won Best Supporting Actress that year. And I'd only seen her as the wife in It's a Wonderful Life before. Um, and Frank Sinatra, this movie sort of like kickstarted his acting career because he won Best Supporting Actor uh, that year as well. I, I know I knew only of this movie from the iconic shot of From Here to Eternity, which is uh, I think it's uh, Burt Lancaster and Deborah Kerr's characters on, kissing on the beach. You guys have probably seen that shot in montages uh, the world over. But uh, I, I so knowing that this movie was about that and and included that shot. I just assumed that the entire thing would be this sort of like sweeping romance that takes place uh, leading up to Pearl Harbor. But it's actually only really the back half of the movie that really gets into the romantic stuff. The first half of the film, surprisingly, because this came out in the early 50s, uh, is much more of like a Cool Hand Luke kind of thing where uh, Montgomery Cliff's character is basically just being broken down by the uh, army unit that he's in. And it, it's more about like this... Um, you know, I, I always picture, based on pop culture, I always picture like the early 50s to be this sort of... Uh, you know, like, uh, like leave it to beaver, like super, uh, you know, like cheesy G golly whiz kind of, uh, period in American history. But, uh, this movie sort of, uh, it depicts the, the way that, um, the army worked and the way that these characters interact as being a lot more like, uh, anti-authoritarian and stuff that I, I didn't really place in my mind as, as, becoming like pop culture staples until like the 1960s. So I was surprised to see something from 53 have a really, really heavy streak of that in the first half of this movie. So uh, it's pretty good. The ending I, I wasn't really a big fan of, but I, I would say the performances are, are really great across the board. And this is definitely worth watching if you're if you have any interest in film history and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think you can stream this right now on like Amazon Prime. Uh, you can rent it on, you know, Vudu and YouTube and all that stuff. And that's from here to eternity. Uh, I also saw High Society, which is a 1956 movie directed by Charles Walters. This one star also starred uh, Frank Sinatra and it, it stars uh, Bing Crosby and Grace Kelly as well. This is a musical remake of the Philadelphia story, which I talked about I don't know, a month or two ago on the podcast. I, I watched that for the first time. Uh, that is a, a really famous play that was then turned into a movie with Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and Catherine Hepburn. And this is just a, a musical version of that. It's it's really like uh, it's almost the same exact story, but just with a couple musical numbers thrown in. I, so I don't have much to say about it other than it's kind of it's, it's like the worst version of uh, of this story, if you had to watch one of the two, I would definitely recommend the Philadelphia story over High Society. But that being said, there are some really fun moments in here. Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra in particular have a couple of really great song and dance numbers. Um, well, not so much dancing, really, but just singing. And, and the whole vibe is, you know, a bunch of super rich people hanging out. And it's like a, it's like wealth porn almost <laughs> from from the 1950s. So uh, if that if that uh, strikes your fancy at all. 
uh, you can rent high society from uh, any of those same places that I just mentioned. Uh, I also saw two movies with the world, the word triple in the title. Uh, first up was triple threat, which was a movie that I saw a little while ago, but the embargo just lifted today. I am so disappointed in this film, guys. This, I called it, the Avengers of martial arts movies in a, a trailer write-up that I did for it because I was so excited about what this movie could represent. So it stars Tony Jaa, Iko Uwais, and Tiger Chen. And if you are, have been paying attention to the martial arts movie scene over the past 10 or 15 years, those names are huge names in that world. Uh, it also stars Scott Adkins, who's another really big name there, and Michael J. White. And I was very, very excited about this movie. It's, it's got a super like stripped down basic plot where a Chinese billionaire's daughter becomes the target of a, an elite assassin squad and a couple of like renegade mercenaries try to protect her and and stop these assassins. And it teams up all these incredible people from the world of martial arts movies. And the whole thing is just so limp and dramatically inert and just uh, such a bore and a slog to get through. I was, I was, you know, with all of those people in there, Tony Jaa, you know, if he was, if you guys have seen the movies like uh, The Protector and Ung Bak, those are incredible films that put, you know, his martial arts prowess at front and center. And I was hoping to really see all of these people be let loose and uh, and clash in really interesting ways. And it was like, there's not that many fight scenes in this movie. And that's what the entire film should be. It's just a loose excuse to get from one fight scene to another. Nobody's coming to this for, you know, detailed plot stuff. And the movie sort of gets into the weeds on that a little bit. And it's it's just not fun. I'm, I'm so sad and disappointed about this. I know that we've talked about this uh, a little bit between you and I, Jacob, but did you ever have a chance to see this movie or has anybody else on the podcast seen this yet? I haven't seen it, but I have a question. Yes. Uh, as somebody who's, who consumes my fair share of direct-to-video action trash, I'm familiar with the kind of movie you're describing where the case often is they can afford to bring on these martial arts stars or the big name in the cast for, you know, three, four, five, six days. And then they have to pad out the rest of the movie with tons, tons of plot because they have to squeeze in the action scenes with the stars. I mean, it's something you actually see a lot um, in recent Steven Seagal movies where even though he's the star, he's sometimes the third most important character because he shows up <laughs> for five days and, and screws off while barely doing his own stunts. Um, so does it, does it feel like maybe... The, the, the actors who are really cool are barely in it, and they're sort of like padding it out with this plot because maybe they simply couldn't afford to have them all in one place. Is, is I, that possible? I would feel much more sorry for this film if that were the case, but sadly it is not. Like, all of the the main people in this film are in the entire movie. It's like all uh. of them. And they're just so, like, the there's, there's a final confrontation between Michael J. White and... Yuko Oase and Tiger Chen like teamed up against them like a like a two on one that could have been legendary. It could have been talked about in the same, you know, sort of hushed tones that people that martial arts fanatics talk about the raid movies. And it's just such a bummer. Like there's there's one decent fight where it's like a two on one with Yuko Oase and Tony Jaa versus Ta uh, Scott Adkins at the very end. But it's not worth waiting through the entire movie for. And also the one other note that I had written down was this movie really is a true fantasy because it's about a mega rich heiress who spends her entire family's fortune on helping the poor. So, uh, yeah, that's it's got that 
going for it, but that's about it. So that's Triple Threat. Uh, it's actually in, playing in theaters tonight for one night only, like 150 theaters, like a limited release around the country. Uh, I would not recommend going to see it in the theaters. I would not recommend watching it in any case. But if you uh, if you refuse my advice, you can watch it on a VOD when it hits um, this Friday, March 22nd. I'm curious to hear about the next film, Ben, because this is a film I was planning on watching over the weekend. I just couldn't find time. That's Triple Frontier. How is it? Yes. So from Triple Threat to Triple Frontier. And this one uh, was directed by J.C. Shandor. It's on Netflix right now, and it stars Ben Affleck, Oscar Isaac, Charlie Hunnam, Garrett Hedlund, and Pedro Pascal. And it's about a, a bunch of former former special ops guys who plan this heist in South America and <laughs> J.C. Shandor is a, an interesting director. He's he's made movies like uh, Margin Call and All Is Lost and A Most Violent Year. And he strikes me as somebody who's very, very interested in process because this film feels very methodical. Uh, I guess it's sort of reflecting the approach of its you know former special ops uh, protagonists because it's very like – uh, all right, this is how we're going to do this. We're going to set this up. And then that exact thing happens. And it's like step by step going through. And then, of course, things go uh, don't go fully according to plan. But I I think I enjoyed this movie. I just watched it this morning. So I'm still sort of sitting with it and, and trying to, to wrap my mind around whether or not I enjoyed it. I think there's some really interesting stuff here about the um, – the cycles of violence that occur in in terrible situations like this and the generational trauma that is that is uh, inflicted uh, in terms of like uh, the consequences of greed and, and the consequences of these guys actions. Um, but the film just sort of like flirts with those ideas and doesn't really fully dive into them. But there's some beautiful cinematography in here and the the action is pretty decent. And I was I was pretty tense, like seeing how this whole thing was going to play out. And it, it goes to some pretty unexpected places or uh, or I, I found them to be unexpected based on the way that the whole film sort of was uh, was setting itself up. So uh, I would give it a loose recommend. Maybe. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's 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 not going to be like in the top five Netflix movies, uh, but it's a it's a solid watch. And um I would say that the performances are are pretty good. And uh, yeah, like I said, the cinematography, I mean, maybe that alone makes it worth watching because it's just there's some really, really gorgeous footage of uh, of jungles and stuff. I think it was shot in Hawaii, but supposed to take place in the jungles of South America for the most part. But uh, yeah, that's Triple Frontier. It's on Netflix right now. Okay. earlier on, we heard, Chris, that you went to Austin to see Pet Cemetery. We're all interested to hear. What did you think? Uh, I loved it. My my review is up on SlashFilm.com right now, so I encourage everyone to go read it. But this, um, I had very high expectations for this because Pet Cemetery is my favorite Stephen King book. Um, I, I like the '89 film, and I, you know, I was I was really worried that you know this would just not live up to my specific brand of hype, but it really did, and then some. Um, it's not the most faithful adaptation, but uh, as I say in my review, I feel like the best Stephen King movies are not the ones that are 100%, you know, uh, accurate to the text. It's more that they're they're true to the spirit. And I think the best example of that is, you know, think of The Shining. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is considered, you know, one of the best Stephen King movies. It, that is very unfaithful to, you know, the text. It, it's true to the spirit. It's true to the story. But it does not translate the text uh, exactly. And case in point, 
Stephen King was so disappointed in that years later, he wrote a miniseries adaptation, which is almost word for word from the book. And it's terrible. It's a terrible movie. So I, I feel like if you're one of those people who gets really hung up on exact adaptations, you might not like this. But if you're you know, a fan of the world of Stephen King, this, this film really delivers. It really uh, captures that that dread and that menace that is so prevalent in the book. And uh, it's actually like, it's somehow bleaker than the book, which I never thought would be possible because the book is incredibly dark, but the, the film goes to even darker places. And the fact that this is a, a, like a major studio release with these very, very dark things in it is very impressive. I, I'm really happy that Paramount let this film get away with what it gets away with. And I think I think it's going to go over well. I don't know if it's going to be as big a hit as the the recent It remake was, but um, based on you know the audience uh, at South by Southwest I saw it with, I think people are going to love this because even though it is incredibly bleak, there's these weirdly funny moments in it just because it, it's, it gets like absurd to the point of how dark it is that you can't help but just nervously laugh at, at, at what's going on. But it, it's definitely one of my all-time favorite Stephen King adaptations. And uh, that, set, that says a lot for me because I'm a huge Stephen King nerd. So it really did live up to the hype. Very cool. Uh, it, it seems like both you and Jacob really love this film. I've been seeing a little bit of mixed reaction around the web. Why do you think that not everybody's responding to it as well? as yeah, the same as you and Jacob? I don't know. It's weird. Uh, you know, it, it's got great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, but after the film let out, I was talking to a few people, a few people I knew and some people I didn't really know. And for the most part, everyone, not everyone, but a large amount of people loved it. But there were one or two people who were just like, oh, I didn't like that. And their sticking point really seems to be that it doesn't stay true to the text. And honestly, if you're going to let that bother you so much, I don't know what you <laughs> what uh, you're, you really want from a movie. Like, you know, if you want the text, read the book. That's what the book is for. You're, you're not going to get – no movie is ever going to be exactly like the book. And if that's like such a huge sticking point for you, you're you're always going to be disappointed. I don't Unless you're watching, you know, Zack Snyder direct 300 or Watchmen. Like, I don't know what else you, you, you could want. <laughs> And you know, at the same time, though, I don't want to like shrug people off. You know, it's not going to be for everyone. If you don't like it, you don't like it. That's fine. But for me, this really did work. And that's not the only horror film you saw, right? Uh, I got to South by Southwest um, a day before the Pet Cemetery screening, and I was able. Jacob was able to help me get into the the Curse of La Girona screening, which is the latest uh, Conjuring movie, because that also played at South by Southwest. West and. Boy, was this movie not good. Um, I'm, I'm a Conjuring Universe fan. I, I think I like the main Conjuring movies more, you know, Conjuring, Conjuring 2, than the spinoffs. But of all the spinoffs, this is definitely just the worst. It, it, it offers nothing new. It's just constant jump scares. And I, I really did not care for it. And uh, like the minute it ended, I basically ran out of the theater just to get the hell out of there because I was so bored with it. Um, other than that, uh, I mentioned, I went to the draft house twice. Uh, the two films I saw were climax, which is the, the Gaspar no movie, which, um, I think Jacob talked about previously. And this movie is, uh, as insane as people have been saying it is, it's just, it starts off kind of, I won't say normal, but it starts off like a, you know, an, uh, uh, a not insane story. And then it slowly 
goes uh, out of its mind. And I'm not really a big Gaspar No fan, but this, I think, is probably his best movie. Um, and then the other one was Apollo 11, which is a documentary that's made up entirely of recently discovered footage of the Apollo 11 miss- uh, mission. And it's been remastered and it's in, um, you know, it's in 4K. And I think it was shot in 70 millimeter and it looks gorgeous like if it almost looks like it was shot like yesterday and there's no narration there's no you know talking heads it's not like a normal documentary that you were so used to it's literally just it's constructed like you're watching a narrative unfold surrounding the mission it's very exciting it's very engrossing it like it's like it puts you like there in the moment hey chris other question about this one uh have you seen for all mankind i have not no it's another documentary. Actually, Criterion has a Blu-ray of it, and it's similar in structure where it's just a uh, narration-free assembly of NASA footage of various space missions. But unlike this, it's five or six different missions, uh, footage from those cut together in tandem, exploring a a you know a a, a a a space mission from you know very beginning until return to Earth. And I was just curious if you could offer a comparison, but I guess not because I'm very, very curious I- to see how they differ. I mean, based on what you said, that is really what this is like. But I'm having not seen For All Mankind, I can't comment on the quality of the footage. But I think the drawing factor here is how crisp and how uh, HD the, the footage here looks. Like, you would never believe this was shot decades ago. It looks like it was shot, like, today. Like So that, I think, is, is the real uh, drawing factor here. Yeah. I, I highly recommend that documentary that Jacob just mentioned. It's... Uh... I guess it's on Criterion, so I guess you're going to get it when you get that service. That's coming. Yeah, out, right? I'll have to finally check it out. Yeah. Um, and you finally got uh, to see Aquaman. I did, and man, I really liked Aquaman. I was not wow. I was, yes. I was surprised how much I liked it. Um, it's really stupid. It has a really stupid screenplay, <laughs> but I I love how much this movie is swinging for the fences. Um, uh, you know, I would rather watch this than ever rewatch uh, uh, what was it called, Infinity War, because this it's trying something different. It's trying to be this big epic. Like nothing in Infinity War feels epic to me. It just feels like another movie. And Aquaman, it's trying to be this like Lord of the Rings meets H.P. Lovecraft movie, and. Uh, like I said, not all of it works. You know, uh, the chemistry between Jason Momoa and Amber Heard is non-existent. Like, I, they have no chemistry at all. The, the script is is too cluttered. Like, you know, even though I thought Bla- Black Manta as a character was cool, he doesn't really fit with the rest of the movie. It just feels like they put him in the movie because he's a well-known character. But visually, it's stunning. The colors are gorgeous. I love that nothing really looks real in the movie but it's like intentional it's not like trying to look real it's this like hyper realism um uh, so yeah i i really liked aquaman it's not like my favorite superhero movie but it's so much more interesting than a lot of stuff marvel has been doing lately so you you win this round dc at least in my mind i like you gave us a big hug with one arm and then slapped us with your infinity war comments chris (laughs) look (laughs) I'm here for. Doesn't Infinity War have a dragon though? Yeah, no, I don't it think does so. Not. Yeah, there's no giant Cthulhu monster that comes out of the the sea in, in Infinity War. So yeah, Infinity War doesn't also have a slow motion beach walk scene sent to a shitty cover of Africa by Pitbull. <laughs> hilarious. Yes, I, I will. I know, say but there is no moment in Infinity War as visually inspired as Aquaman and, and Mira's dive into the trench. So I'll, I'll give it that. 
Yeah, the, it, this movie is it looks gorgeous. It's just a gorgeous looking movie. By visually and, inspired, you mean by Tron Legacy and event in uh, Avatar, right? <sighs> I think this looks better than those movies. I don't know. Whatever. Listen, Infinity War sucks. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. It's a bad movie. Moving on. Uh, I saw. I just watched uh, Dragged Across Concrete, which is the latest um, Craig Zoller movie. Um, people love this guy. He he wrote. Uh, he wrote Bone Tomahawk. He wrote. Uh, brawl in cell block 99 he wrote that new puppet master movie he's got a very big following among genre fans and i am not one of them i actually don't like any of those movies i think they're just either okay to terrible i think the the puppet master movie is is almost unwatchable honestly but this um this worked for me it's it's definitely not going to be for everyone it's unrelentingly brutal and then there's the fact that it stars you know mel gibson who is a terrible person and people may not want to watch him in anything especially in this movie where he plays like a, a really racist cop which just seems like a bit of troll casting that like because everyone knows mel gibson is racist so here he is playing a racist but if you can get past all that stuff this this um is a a, a surprisingly good movie it's it's hard to watch it's 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 shocking and it's it's deliberately trying to push buttons but it, it worked for me in the most part uh here's my question about this one i'm sorry to butt in chris but no, i think uh brawl on cell block 99 is one of my favorite movies i hated because <laughs> i think i think it's a loathsome piece of shit but it right. made it with such vigor determination and such a specific skill set it is so uniquely s craig zoller nobody else could have made that nobody else could have made it in that style with that pace with that tone and it is also an aggressive piece of trash that i want to burn but i also want to also want to talk about it constantly is dry to cost concrete as interesting as that uh i think it is it's not as stylish as that movie i think there's like a heightened realism in brawl that makes it seem like it's set in this like alternate universe because like the beginning of the movie vince vaughn beats a car up until it falls apart which no one can really do but this movie feels a little more grounded in the real world so it's not it doesn't have those stylish flourishes but it it has a very similar loathsome tone that just worked better for me here than in other films okay cool so what what else have you been watching chris uh, last but not least, I watched four episodes of the brand new Twilight Zone, and I'm embargoed from giving an, like a full review. But let's just say if you're a fan of the Twilight Zone, you won't be disappointed. Um, the very first time they do the thing where they introduce something and then the camera slowly pans over to reveal Jordan Peele in a suit as the narrator, I got like goosebumps. I was just like, oh, yes, this is exactly what I wanted because he's doing, you know, the Rod Serling part where he just shows up in the middle of scenes to introduce the episode. And um, I'll, I'll have a review soon when the embargo is up, but uh, that'll be on um, CBS All Access, I think, next month. But if you're looking forward to it, I don't think you'll be disappointed. The, the one thing I got to ask you, Chris, is with CBS producing this, CBS has like this network feel to it. I feel like even the Star Trek show, Star Trek Discovery, doesn't feel like on the level of like a premium cable network production. Does like where does this land? This looks great. I mean, I have not watched um, Star Trek, so I can't, I can't comment on how that show looks. But 
this looked really um, cinematic. I, I was impressed with the, the visual style of the show. Um, granted, I've only seen four episodes. I don't know how many they're going to be total. So there, there might be cheaper looking episodes. Maybe they yeah. intentionally released the best episodes yeah. to press first. But based on what I saw, it looked good. Okay, Jacob, you've been spending most of your time at South by. We talked about that yesterday on the podcast. Yeah, I spent we spent an hour talking about my favorite films of the fest. So please go listen to yesterday's episode uh, for my full thoughts on a lot of these movies. So I'm just going to give each of these movies a a one sentence review for those of you who don't want to hear me talk at length. Uh, Jordan Peele's Us, maybe my favorite film of the year. Uh, hard to see. Uh, yeah, Book Smart. Olivia Wilde makes my favorite coming of age movie in a long time. The Art of Self Defense. Fight Club 2019, but much funnier. Good Boys. I laugh until I literally hurt all over my body. Pet Cemetery. Chris is right. Stuber. <laughs> Camille Nanjiani and Dave Batista are um, an amazing buddy cop duo. The Curse of La Llorona. Absolute trash. I'll be writing an editorial about how this movie betrays the Conjuring universe closer to release. All right. Uh, moving on. <laughs> Post South by. I started watching uh, Netflix's Bodyguard, a BBC series that Netflix acquired uh, after it was a huge, massive hit, like record-shattering from, from what I understand uh, in the UK. And this series stars Game of Thrones is uh, Richard Madden, you may know as the is Rob, the, the the ill-fated Rob Stark, uh, plays David Budd, a police officer uh, who works as a bodyguard for politicians and you know security services, and he has PTSD, and he's come back from you know military service uh, damaged, but with a perspective that lets him um, not only protect and serve, and but also kill, but also talk his way out of things when he needs to. And what I was most taken by with the show in its first three episodes, uh, out of the six in the first season, is how much it plays like the anti-24. I say somebody who used to watch 24 all the time back in the day. But 24 was so irresponsible with its politics and so unwilling to, you know, try to even explore anything beyond a vengeful, violent approach to counterterrorism. Whereas the first scene, the first sequence in the first episode of Bodyguard is Richard Madden's character diffusing a terrorist situation uh, through pure negotiation without a gun by talking a suicide bomber down um, and having her peacefully surrender uh, to the authorities and the show even though it has gunfights and gets violent uh really leans on david budd being a character who uh was wrapped up in all the post 9 11 uh warmongering a guy who was sent overseas a guy who was injured a guy who saw his friends die and has come back with extremely complex feelings um on war and he knows war better than anybody else, but he knows well enough to know, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this constantly. We should find other solutions. At the same time, he's trying to, you know, stop a terror plot. At the same time, he's forced to use his violent skills. I, know, I was really won over by, by Madden's performance. I think he's incredibly, you know, he's an incredibly good-looking, you know, movie star type guy. But he's also doing some really good, subtle work here where you always see the gears turning even when his face is blank. You're always wondering what he's thinking and how he's planning to approach the situation. And maybe the show craps a bit in the last half. I'm looking forward to uh, finishing it sometime this week. Uh, did anybody else watch Bodyguard? I I have not, but I've heard a lot of comparisons to 24 and some comparisons to Homeland. And Homeland yeah. I always think of as kind of trying to be a smarter man's 24. So I'm, I'm wondering how that compares to that. 
I've only seen the first two seasons of Homeland, and I guess Homeland is a show I like. Uh, I think it gets a little bit too soapy for my taste, and Bodyguard does lean on some, you know, occasionally overly dramatic uh, plot points, but I feel like it has the intensity of 24 and the sophistication of Homeland, but with a perspective that feels like it only could have been made now. I feel like it, it has enough distance from, the, from you know, the start of the war on terror to very clearly and level-headedly, up, you know, approach this type of storytelling more so than those shows. And okay. isn't, like, isn't this supposed to be, like, sexy? Like, like Homeland isn't sexy, but the show is, isn't this supposed to be, like, him and the, the bodyguard and his client are getting it on all the time? Isn't that what the show is about? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. One subplot is that the, the, uh, David Budd and the woman he's protecting uh, have a good dynamic because not only do they sort of fall for each other, but he hates her politics. Like he he's he's defending he's protecting her because he is assigned to, but she's a warmonger who who deeply believes in everything that he stands against. So it ends up being like this sort of really really bizarre uh, chemistry where you end up liking them both and seeing how they can make a, make the make that connection uh while at the same time constantly <laughs> constantly having to concern himself with the fact that this woman who he's being assigned to put his life on a line for he would have her removed from office if he had the choice <laughs> okay i think you finally sold me on this show jacob i'm gonna give it a try um it's good if the first episode doesn't win you over you know that, that's fine but the first episode really really grabbed me so i'd say at least try that Oh, and I watched the Top Chef season finale. I won't spoil it here, but I will say that the right person won because the other person, my wife and I decided early on in the season, was the worst Top Chef contestant we've seen in years. Could not stand this person. We were rooting for this person to be eliminated constantly, and it never happened, and they made it to the finale, but they did not win, and I will celebrate their loss. Thank you very much. Cool. Okay, uh, let's move on to HT. What, what have you been watching this week? Uh, in addition to Shazam, I got to see Wonder Park. Well, maybe not got to see is, isn't the right word because it was, it's fine. It's a, a Nickelodeon animated film that feels very much like a overlong TV pilot for a TV series. And that's because it is. Um, it's intended to sort of kick off a television series that will be coming to Nickelodeon later this year, much in the vein of Jimmy Neutron and uh, I think one other show that um, start got a start in, in a film like from Nickelodeon. Um, Wonder Park is really beautifully animated and it has sort of some Pixar light uh, emotional complexity going towards it, but it just kind of feels a little half-baked and um, doesn't uh, quite um, live up to the, I mean, the park is gorgeous, but it's the most interesting part of the film. So there's a, I wrote a review of it on slashfilm.com. I don't really have much more to say of it, um, but uh, you can check out my review on the website. Um, I also got, uh, saw The Guilty, which is um, a film, a Danish film, I think, on uh, Hulu. Um, and this is a thriller that takes place kind of in one room, it's a very claustrophobic thriller that follows an alarm dispatcher for the police station who gets an emergency call from a kidnapped woman and uh, tries to be, uh, start a search for, for this woman and um, her kidnapper from the confines of his um, sort of alar alarm dispatch desk. And uh, this is a really great, really taut thriller um, despite its sort of low stakes setting um, it's incredible um, that it, it 
basically is just one performance on screen. The star Jacob Cedargren is the only person who really appears on screen apart from a few like background actors and one person, a few people who like have a few lines on screen. But otherwise, it's him and people on the phone. And he carries this film amazingly. Um, it's actually set for an American remake starring Jake Gyllenhaal, which sounds very much like a Jake Gyllenhaal kind of movie. <laughs> um, but it's it's great. I re- recommend that you check it out on Hulu. It's um, quite a surprise. It's only it's a very short film, but it's um, compelling and gripping for the entire, I think, hour and a half that it uh, runs. Um, and uh, next film I saw is a film called Deep Red. And this is a Dario Argento film that just came onto Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime just kind of uh, dropped a bunch of Italian giallo films and spaghetti westerns. So uh, there's a, a interesting sort of trove of films that um, range from really great to really interesting. <laughs> and uh, Deep Red is more on the better side. It's a film that um, Dario Argento directed for Suspiria. So I went into this kind of expecting something more along the lines of Suspiria, a little trippy, a little surreal. And this was actually more of a slasher whodunit than I anticipated, although it has some sort of uh, strange uh, kind of unnerving elements like this presence of a doll that keeps appearing at all of these crime scenes. But it follows a a pianist, a British jazz musician, um, who kind of becomes obsessed with this serial killer after witnessing the murder of a psychic medium. And uh, he starts to follow the trail of this serial killer and um, people around him start dying, all yada yada. And um, it's it's a really, it's a visually stunning film as you'd expect from a Dario Argento film. Um, and uh, it's it's quite enjoyable. I recommend it. This is on Amazon Prime and it comes with uh, yeah a bunch of other Italian giallo films that are like available on that service now. I remember when we were talking about a while ago, uh, whether we would prefer Amazon or Netflix um, because of just like the wealth of movies that Amazon has, but they don't quite have the high Rotten Tomato scores that Netflix films have. Um, it's movies like Deep Red and the other um, more obscure films like that that I think give uh, um, Amazon the the slight leg up because uh, you don't really find a lot of films before the 1980s on Netflix. So um, Deep Red, you can find that on Amazon Prime. And um, speaking of Netflix, after I just kind of <laughs> uh, criticized it a bit, I watched the new episodes of Terrace House that were just made available on the streaming service. Uh, I've talked a little bit about Terrace House before. I won't go too far into it, but this is the last batch of episodes that are taking place at the Karuzawa season. Um, Karuzawa is a sort of sleepy rural town a couple hours outside of Tokyo and uh, I've been really enjoying this season which is called Terrace House Opening New Doors and um, I've, I've liked it for that rural setting and how kind of sleepy and peaceful it's been and has like a sort of more family oriented uh, bent uh, has not been so for this new batch of episodes it's a lot very dramatic and kind of stressful but uh with the one with one housemate in particular emerging as uh probably one of the worst housemates in a terrace house sort of uh, echelon but um I've been enjoying it a lot and uh it's still kind of much more serene than any other American reality shows that you'll see so terrace house uh, now streaming on Netflix very cool. And I just want to say we've reached the point that this is already the longest episode of the water cooler in the history of 
the water cooler. Uh, we still have two more segments. We're going to try to barrel through them uh, because I know, you know, we're running really long, but we haven't recorded, you know, one of these episodes in, in two weeks. So, uh, And people definitely don't have a choice as to whether or not they want to keep listening. Yeah, that too. Um, okay. Uh, what I've been, let's move on to what we've been eating. I, I discovered something this week. I discovered this thing called pizza in a bag. It's produced by super snack time, which I guess is a company that's, uh, owned by Epic mealtime that, uh, you know, YouTube series. And they basically have made out of pepperoni. They made pepperoni jerky. Uh, it's called Pizza in a Bag, and the, the one I would recommend you check out is the Supreme Pizza version. Actually, Brad, I would actually recommend you recommend this to you because this is not just a keto treat. Like, this is like, you know, this is a treat for anybody. Uh, but it just so happens that it's low on carbs, uh, high in fat, uh, and each piece of the pepperoni literally tastes like you're eating pizza. Like, it smells and tastes like um, it. it is – so good, um, and uh, yeah, I would highly recommend it to anyone. Uh, it's called Pizza in a Bag. I think you can get it on their website for really cheap. Amazon sells it for like an outrageously upcharged price, and I think Walmart has it. Uh, so if you have a Walmart near you, check out uh, Pizza in a Bag. So it's like jerky? Yeah, it's like these big slices of pepperoni. They have like the stuff sprinkled onto it, and it has... I don't know how they make it, and I actually don't even know it's, like, very healthy for you because, like, if you look at the list of ingredients, it has, like, more ingredients than anything I've ever seen. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's strangely good. And um, although if you go to Walmart to try to find it, I someone, one of my friends went to Walmart to try to find it, and I guess it was, like, in the fishing section or something. So you might have to ask for where it is, uh, but I would yeah. highly recommend it. Um, over the weekend, I found a recipe for keto McRiddles. So I made a keto version of the McDonald, you know, that sandwich. That's basically an egg and bacon and cheese sandwich inside, like you know, two pancake slices, and it's it's very good. I will link the that recipe in the show notes. So if you you want to try it out and you want to uh, you know eat a you know more healthy version of a McDonald's McGriddle. Uh, there you go, and it's, it's low in carbs and sugar. Um, I also got a shipment of ce- the Cereal School. This is a cereal that's made for low-carb people. I, I had gotten it previously. They make two different kinds. It, they make a fruity kind, which is kind of like, I guess, like Fruit Loops or Fruity Pebbles or whatever. And they make a uh, cinnamon bun kind, which is kind of like, I guess, Cinnamon Toast Crunch or whatever. Uh, they recently... I loved it. They recently reformulated it. It was five net carbs per serving. They changed the sweeteners. They changed how it looks. It's now like this puff, uh, kind of like a uh, fruity pebble. No, um, what are the puffs, uh, Brad? Uh, like, like the fruity puffs? Like a circular fruit what, loops. Tricks. Fruit. Loops? Oh, tricks. Yeah, yeah. Trick. Yeah, tricks has they. I think now they they went back to having the fruit shapes, but yeah, for a while they were just uh, the fruity fruity puffs, yeah, yeah. So it, it, they they went to that. Um, I will admit, I I do not like this as much uh, when you put it in milk. Uh, the flavor kind of goes away. Uh, I will I, I still like it, but I don't love it as much. I know Jacob, I recommended this to you, and uh, with South by, did you get a chance to try this? Uh, yeah. Having not tried the first formula, I think that this is a perfectly acceptable, tasty uh, snack, especially when you're on the go, especially when you need something to crunch. 
when you're I, I actually recommend alive. it better as an on-go snack without milk than with milk because I feel like yeah. the milk takes away the flavor. But like if you eat it out of the bag and it's like a hundred calories or something. Yeah. yeah, it's like 100 calories. I have a bag right in front of me. I've been, I've been on mute this entire – whenever I'm not talking on the show, I've been eating a bag of it this entire show. But, yeah, it's uh, one carb for a bag, uh, 16 protein. And it's, it's one of those things where, like, if you pour it into a bowl of milk, you'd probably be really disappointed by it. If you, but if you're, you know, on a diet and you want, you know, a satisfying crunch, if you want a burst of, you know, fruity or cinnamon flavor, it really does scratch that itch. And it actually is very filling because of all the protein in it. So having – Having not tasted the previous flavor, I am very much on board with the cereal school and buying more. I bought the, the $50 box here, so I have oh, wow. a whole bunch of it. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad I liked it. Uh, my one complaint is that if you eat too much of it at once, it, it does start, kind of start to just taste like you're chewing styrofoam a little bit. Yeah. So you solve that by you know having a couple pieces at a time, putting it aside, not just eating gaping handfuls of it. I think, I think it's a snack that's meant to be enjoyed, you know, at at, at, a, at a certain pace. But I'm 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 impressed enough, knowing that there's no other product like this for people like us who eat the way we do, Peter. Yeah, uh, I think they have me as a customer for for at least a little while longer. Yeah, no, I like this company, um, and I'm sure they're going to be playing with the formula a little bit more too. Uh, I also I ended up getting uh, Kijo, Keto Mojo, and what this is is a blood uh, reader device, so um, I can you know take blood out of my finger and test it and see what my blood glucose uh, reading is and also see you know how many ketones are in my blood. Uh, the reason why I got this is I used to track. If I was in keto, they have these like strips that you pee onto. But as you get more into uh, into into uh, what is it uh, fat adapted, I guess yeah, that does not work as well. And I I hit a slump in my weight loss uh, for like uh, two weeks. I had not lost any weight, so it was bothering me. I was like wondering like is there stuff I'm eating that's you know, taking me out of keto, uh, ketosis or stuff that's like spiking my blood sugar. So I bought this and this, and that's a big thing for me because I am deathly afraid of needles. If there's a needle on screen during a movie. I will close my eyes. Like I, uh, do not like going to the doctor and by not like, I, I will, uh, scream like a girl. Um, when my, <laughs> my blood's getting taken out, but I, I wanted to get this because I wanted to, to get to the bottom of the story. And I'm glad I did because I was able to pinpoint some stuff I was eating that was affecting me that I did not know was affecting me. And, um, it's, uh, my only complaint about this, this reader, Keto Mojo is it's not that user friendly. It still like feels like a device that you'd, get from like you know some hospital supply company or something like that and you kind of have to like do your research and like what does this number even mean and then you got to do some math because if for you need to uh divide the you know the glucose reading into the ketone reading and that gives you your gki and that that means something um it's it's way too much it should be simplified i'm sure they'll eventually have one that's more simplified but um but if you're doing this uh i recommend it so, uh, Jacob, what have you been eating? Uh, in addition to cereal school, I finally got my hands on Rebel Ice Cream, which is now being carried in H-E-B stores in Texas. And those of you don't know, H-E-B is the major grocery chain in most cities in Texas. And so now uh, 
I have regular access to it, and this may be my favorite diet snack of all time. This ice cream is legitimately good. Uh, I like the peanut butter chocolate flavor and the cookie dough flavor personally, but there's all different kinds, and it's specifically made for you know keto diets and or, or people with, with diabetes, people who who trying to avoid sugar. Uh, it's high fat, made with cream, uh, but uh, also no real sugar in it so i think you can eat an entire pint for five carbs up to eight carbs so if you're, if you're like me you maybe you spend your entire day being really really good in your diet and, and only eating um very few carbs and you go home and say oh you know what i'm gonna have an entire pint of ice cream for dessert and you can get away with it guilt-free that's one of those things where like it sounds you know crazy like quackery like how does this work uh but in the time since we last recorded a, a water cooler I've been eating this ice cream pretty regularly as my you know go-to snack in the in an evening, and I'm down another gold shirt and I'm down another hole in my belt. So you know, I'm just gonna keep on doing what it works, which means following uh, the rules I've been following and taking Peter's recommendations yeah. for snacks because they almost always worked out. Yeah, no, um, and I I actually hit 45 pounds loss, so uh, I am I'm also doing well. Uh, great to see. Oh, thank you. Um, and it's great to hear from readers and listeners out there. Uh, we've been hearing a bunch of uh, th- this has inspired some people. I, I actually even a colleague of ours uh, came up to me at a junket and he had lost thirty pounds, and it was uh, you know thanks to him hearing about all this. So um, so I'm glad that people are getting something out of this, and it's uh, I'm sure. I'm sure these recommendations are annoying. Uh, you know, some people that are, you know, like Brad, who just want to eat the the newest uh, sugary cereal. But I'm I'm glad it, it, we're helping someone out there. Um, I'm not annoyed by it. If anything, it's it's I, I'll have all these ideas in my back pocket when I decide to stop being a piece <laughs> of shit. <laughs> but Brad, I will recommend the pizza in a bag. I want to I want to hear your thoughts on the the supreme pizza in a bag. I'll have to see if I can find it because I do like getting beef jerky every now and then, and I love pepperoni, so I'll, I'll have to give it a shot. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of sugary cereal have you been eating this week, Brad? Uh, so I, I do have two new cereals this week uh, that just, just recently came out. Uh, they were actually released on National Cereal Day back in early March, um, on March 7th, I think it was. <laughs> um, post-release, two new cereals that are very odd flavors to uh turn into cereals and they were so odd that i just obviously i had to try them uh so they came out with these new uh, this uh, maple bacon donut cereal and chicken and waffle cereal and uh they're they're from like the i guess you could say the honey bunches of oats family of cereals that post has because they use the same uh flakes from honey bunches of oats um, and they're like their logos on the box and everything, but then they combine those flakes with these new pieces that make for the weird flavors. So, um, the maple bacon donut one is surprisingly not bad, but it's also very odd. Um, it has the, uh, a little bit of the honey bunch of oats flakes in it, but then the more prominent and plentiful pieces are these like brown loops that represent the maple bacon donuts. And there's there's definitely a sweet smell to it. It almost along the lines of like a uh, that the artificial like pancake or, or waffle smell. Very a very syrupy uh, maple kind of um, scent. And there's there's a hint of the bacon in there too. And when you taste it dry, um, you it's it's an interesting mix of salty and sweet. Um, kind of in the same way that like when you have like a, a, a 
chocolate caramel with like sea salt on it. It has a, a decent mix of the salty and sweet. And the the bacon flavor um, is is definitely more a little more prominent um, than I would have liked. I think because it's it's better dry. I think than it is in milk. It's a little odd in milk, but it's not necessarily bad either. It's just it's different. I'm not used to having that kind of like salty uh, flavor with cereal. So it's a little bit odd, but not necessarily terrible. I I didn't hate it. Um, and it's kind of the same thing with the chicken and waffle cereal, except with the chicken and waffle cereal, the chicken flavor is a lot less prominent, especially when it's in the milk. But if you have the, um, this one actually has two, um, two different pieces in it. It has little square waffle pieces that basically are like waffle crisp reincarnated. If, if you could separate all the waffle pieces from this cereal, you'd basically have waffle crisp back. Um, and then they have these little like chicken drumstick pieces. And if you eat those by yourself, um, by themselves, they actually kind of taste like a snack that you would get in in a bag. You can kind of like taste the the fried chicken seasoning as if it were separated and put into little crunchy like edible pieces. And uh, combined again, it's another weird thing where the salt and um, the salty and sweet doesn't necessarily work well with the milk. But I do think the chicken and waffle uh, works better as as a combined flavor. And I think maybe that might just be because. I don't know the the chicken and um and waffle like flavor together at, when you get at a restaurant or something kind of works, but it might just be because the maple flavor is more prominent and it just tastes a lot more like waffle crisp with a little bit of saltiness in it. So again, not not uh not a new favorite by any means, but just you know weird enough and different enough for me to want to try them. <laughs> yeah, and is and that then, uh, so? Go ahead. Well, what else? You, what else have you been eating this week? So I went to since I went to Canada and Canada is kind of like uh, diet Europe when it comes to having different kinds of candy bars and snacks. I went out of my way to hit up a a grocery store to see what kind of different uh, candies they had up there. And I was not disappointed. Um, One of the things I love about other countries when it comes to the different candy bars they have is specifically the different flavors of Kit Kats that exists literally everywhere else except the United States. I don't understand why uh, the U.S. Um, Kit Kats are only just the regular ones. Like every now and then they bring out um, the they have like the dark chocolate and the white chocolate, and the minis have a new flavor every now and then. And they have the they have a mint one that comes out around Christmas. They do a red velvet one around Valentine's Day, um, and they have a, a triple chocolate one that they do around Halloween. But everywhere else, they have tons of different flavors of Kit Kats. And so I picked up some new ones in Canada. One of them is a cookie crumble one uh, that's kind of like a Kit Kat with like uh, an Oreo cookie um, crumble in the middle of it. And also a hazelnut crunch Kit Kat, which is basically like a, a, a Kit Kat that is filled with kind of like a, a Ferrero Rocher um, kind of uh, hazelnut and crunch filling. Uh, both are fantastic. Both made me wish that there were, again, more flavors of Kit Kats in the United States. But... Alas, we're stuck with the regular Kit Kats. Hey, Brad, I can actually answer that question for you uh, about, about Kit Kats and why you're not getting them in the United States. If you, if you care for me to interrupt your snack spiel for a second, I think it isn't it. It's because isn't it because Kit Kat is owned by a different company around the rest of the world than it is in the United States? Yeah, more or less. First, and if you're a listener who can correct me on this, please correct me. But I believe that the, the name is licensed by a separate company in, for international release, and it's a whole separate company using that name by completely different craziness. And just, and for some reason, the United States company just has no interest in taking advantage of what the other company is doing to create success worldwide. Yeah, that's that's frustrating. 
Um, and so since it's Easter, there were some other their uh, good Easter Easter candy that was out. Uh, I know in recent years they've um, we've gotten Oreo eggs over here, which is something that was overseas for the longest time, and those are fantastic. The cookies and cream filling and those are great. And then there's another one that I found in Canada that is a Chips Ahoy chocolate egg that has basically this uh, cookie dough filling inside of it, and those are awesome. Um, there's all they also have caramel milk. Uh, chocolate eggs up there which is basically the canadian version of caramello and i also picked up coffee crisp chocolate eggs and coffee crisp is um like a mainstay candy bar up in canada uh and as you might guess it, it has a coffee flavor to it but it has uh crispy like wafer pieces uh inside of it and this is basically the chocolate eggs with little crunchy coffee crisp pieces inside that are also very good uh, and then I tried these um, just new uh, crisp apple Pop-Tarts. That's not a Canadian-specific thing. That's just a new Pop-Tart flavor that I happened to find in grocery stores recently. Um, and it's one of my, like, favorite newer Pop-Tart flavors. I'm usually a traditional frosted strawberry guy. Sometimes I go with the s'mores ones. Uh, but these crisp apple Pop-Tarts are fantastic. They're, it, they they kind of remind me of um, every year, year on the holidays, my mom makes uh, this apple crisp dessert dish. And the taste is basically like if you took that and put it into a Pop-Tart. They're, um, you know, obviously they're Pop-Tarts, so they're not super healthy, but they're very good. And I enjoyed them. Uh, one of the one of the things that I've been craving lately because it's, you know, nearing up on Easter is the Cadbury mini eggs. Does anybody else here eat those? Oh, I love Cadbury mini eggs. <sighs> I, I, unfortunately, there's no keto substitute for those. So also. Uh, I actually bought some of those in Canada because uh, just like with Kit Kats um, in Canada and around the world, um, the the Cadbury eggs are um, not owned by Hershey. They're actually owned by Cadbury. And so the chocolate they use isn't Hershey chocolate. It's Cadbury chocolate. So they're infinitely better when you buy them outside the United States. I'm jealous. Um, I think I'm going to have to buy one of those bags, one of those small bags, just for my next cheat day whenever I get there. Five more pounds. <laughs> They have new um, – it's more an aesthetic thing than a flavor thing. They have what are their Cadbury shimmer eggs where the egg shells are a little bit shiny. I have seen that. Uh, that seems to be like the new thing in candy this year is, sh- you know uh, – Shiny candy. Glittery candy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Let's move on to what we've been playing. We've officially, I think, hit about two hours at this point. Um, I went to a game day uh, this past week at my friend Brian's. Played a bunch of party games. I wanted to recommend a few things that we did play. I played this very simple card game called Illusion, where each card has kind of um, the five main colors, and it's like almost like an art piece, where like like an abstract art piece where the colors are like making different shapes and stuff, and you kind of have to. Um, Say if then the next card that you pull out has more of like whatever the color is that uh, round, like so say the color is green, you have to decide if the card that you're putting out has more green in it than the color, the card that's already out. And basically, you know, if you're the other person, you can challenge the other person. It's a, it's a fun very easy gateway game. Uh, I think it could replace something like No Thanks. Uh, it's it's fun, fast, easy to explain, um, and almost anybody could understand it, even like the, the youngest of kids, I think. Um, the second game we played was a card game called The Mind. This is a cooperative game where you're all working together, and uh, the game uses 100 cards numbered 1 to 100, and obviously those are shuffled, and um, 
you this is a mind reading game. So what needs to happen is the cards need to be played into the center of the table in ascending order from one to a hundred. So in the first round, everybody only has one card, right? And it has to be played into center without any talking, any communication at all. So you kind of have to guess when it's your turn to play the card into the center. Now with one card, it's very easy, but each round you eventually get, you know, additional cards. So once you're working with like four or five cards, it becomes much harder to gauge if like the, you know, the next card is yours without uh, any communication. It's, It's a lot of fun. Uh, I think they sell that at Target. It's called The Mind. And uh, the the other game I wanted to recommend is a game called Decrypto. And this is a team game where you're competing against... Uh, you have two different teams. Uh, each team has a set of four different words that they're looking at. So say one of the words is room. And number one is room. Number two is exorcist. Number three is feet. Number four is something else, right? And uh, your partner gets a card that says a code. like It's like, you know, one, four, three, two. And he needs to write down on a piece of paper four words to get you to guess the code. But at the same time, the other team is also trying to guess your code. Um, because they are able to write down all the words that have been given as clues throughout the game, and they're trying to make connections of like what what words could be synonyms or whatever of other things. But uh, you can do fun things like uh, one of the words in our game was "room," and uh, my friend knew that I was a big uh, you know uh, film nerd, so for his clue for "room," he used the word "brie." which uh, the other team thought it was something to do with cheese. So um, it's a fun game. Uh, I would highly recommend any any three of those games. Uh, Jacob, have you played any of those? Uh, I haven't had a chance to play any of those, but The Mind has been recommended to me on many occasions, so that one will probably get played sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy game that shouldn't work because it's like literally you're trying to read the mind of your other teammates, which, you know, you can't do, so... Um, Jacob, what have you been playing this week? Uh, because of South by and because of obligations before that, I have not had a chance to play a video game or a tabletop game in over two weeks. However, I polled my RPG group during South by and said, what do you want to play next? And they all unanimously voted for Fantasy Flight Star Wars Edge of the Empire RPG. So I'm currently designing a miniature campaign of five or six sessions for that. So here's my question for the Slash Film readership and the Slash Film Daily listeners. Since we're all Star Wars fans here, would you be interested in either reports on this show or articles of some kind that are essentially play sessions explaining, you know, what happened in a fictional session of, of Star Wars adventures starring characters probably all made up from scratch from around the table with some maybe familiar elements? Would you be interested in reports from a fictional corner of the Star Wars universe that describe how the game itself functions and how and the choices players make, what impact may be having on our little corner of the Star Wars universe they're making up. If this interests you at all, let me know. The game's happening no matter what, but try to decide if it's worth my time to, you know, keep a little diary of events and, you know, and, and so people can maybe see what, what fun has had or crazy things happen. So let me know on Twitter, you know, email the show. I genuinely want to know if it's something that you would be interested in as a slash film uh, devotee. Okay. 
We have officially hit the end of the water cooler. Uh, you can find Chris's Pet Cemetery review linked in the show notes. You can find all of us at slashfilm.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please head on over to our iTunes page. Give us a five-star review. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Do we really have time for this today, Jacob? I, I know the show is long, but this is, this is very important. And because I'm keeping a, a record of all my books, I can tell you that they're again shooting a book of insults, offense, and affrontery by Louis A. Safian is, fi- is currently filed. This will change as they add more books. Uh, between uh, Book of the Dead, The Complete History of Zombie Cinema by Jamie Russell, and Usagi Ujimbo, Samurai and Other Stories, Gallery Edition by Stan Sakai. So it's wedged between those two uh, fellow masterpieces of literature. Uh, are you are, are you ready? No. <laughs> well, too bad. HT, one time you were sick in bed for a week, and your secretary sent a sympathy card to your wife. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one makes a lot of sense for me. <laughs> yeah, that, that took me a little while connecting the dots there. Well, Ben, the last time you were in the hospital, you got get well cards from all the nurses. <laughs> get out of there, you. <laughs> uh, Chris. Oh, Chris. He can become very unpleasant once you get to know him and owe him. I don't know. <laughs> no. I, 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 I don't, guess so. I don't, know. I don't even understand that one, Jacob. Is once you get to know him, not know as in K N O W, but I guess if you N-O. just tell him no a bunch of times, yeah, yeah. He gets you, you tell Chris no, he becomes very unpleasant. That's oh, true. Boy. I get really angry. Well, Brad, he likes people who arrive at firm convictions after they know what he thinks. I mean, that uh, yeah, it doesn't even explicitly say that it has to match his. I don't understand. I'm, well, also, I'm, I'm not upset by that. <laughs> well, Peter hates those know-it-alls, those who insist he's wrong. <laughs> These jokes were dedicated to the Slash Film listeners and readers I met in line at South by Southwest. You were all lovely. These jokes were told in your name. Amen. <laughs> <laughs>